0: Hi, and welcome back to To Think Minimum, the podcast of the Technology Policy Institute. Today is Tuesday, October 10th, 2023. I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at TPI. I'm here with my co host, TPI Senior Fellow, Sarah O. Lam. Today we're going to talk about the complex and interrelated ways the US, Europe, and other rich countries are reacting to China with respect to technology policy and how China is reacting in turn. We'll talk about the CHIPS Act. Which is intended to promote domestic manufacturing of semiconductors, but includes many protectionist aspects and more. Today, we're delighted to have as our guest Xiaoming Liu. Xiaoming Lu is a director in Eurasia Group's geotechnology practice, where she focuses on the interactions of emerging technologies with geopolitics, market dynamics, and regulatory norms. Before joining Eurasia Group, she was the China practice lead at consulting firm Access Partnership, where she helped top U.S. financial and cloud service providers enter China's market. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Scott and Sarah, for inviting me.
0: Um, So let's start at a very high level. What's changed in the past year or so in the U.S.-China relationship with respect to technology policy?
1: Uh, I think if you look back at the last year or two, uh, Jake Sullivan's speech on emerging technology was a watershed moment as last fall, um, around a year ago this time, uh, he made the big speech um, shaping up a new narrative about US-China technology relationship. He said, in the new strategic competitive environment uh, maintaining a sliding scale approach is no longer feasible we need to maintain multiple generations ahead of China in the critical sectors, such as semiconductor, artificial intelligence, uh, biotechnology, and quantum computing. I think that's a moment that um, draw the outline of the Biden administration's China technology strategy in front of everyone and um, a new trend that's still impacting us today.
0: What? Was the, what do you think was the impetus for that doing that speech then? I know you you mentioned when you joined us in, in Aspen that some of the policies were a response to China twenty twenty five and so what you know what what are what were the motivation motivating factors for him giving that speech then?
1: Uh, I think before he gave that speech, um, a lot of observers have been questioning what's Biden's China strategy. They they uh, spent over a year or so thinking about it. Um, but Jake Sullivan uh, outlined the key objective and approaches uh, in that approach uh, in that in that speech last October. Um, I think for a while the, the Chinese audience have, have been watching. They are hoping Biden administration is very different from Trump. Um, but over a year later, they realized I think the the differences between Biden and Trump is in style, not in substance. If you look at the substance, you could argue Biden administration even plays a heavier focus in the competitive aspect um, of the bilateral relationship. I think some China watchers in this town have argued that this is not a narrative about competition even, it's a narrative about rivalry. Um, I think there's a sense that um, US has been falling behind and in the meantime, that the strategic conflict between the the two countries are escalating, particularly a lot of people pointed to what happened in Taiwan last August, when then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited and um, definitely provoked a lot of activities around the island, and folks have been talking about the, that event um, as one of the incentives that let Jake Sullivan uh, launch the speech and, and framing the whole bil- bilateral relationship in the strategic comp- competition or rivalry frame.
0: When When you were listening to the speech or, or reading it, what were your immediate reactions? Was this something that you kind of expected? Or was it was it surprising?
1: I was somewhat surprising at the moment. I remember, um, I think internally at EG we did a, a assessment, saying like if before, even if during the Trump years, um, some folks argue this is China contain, containment or not, but the the speech last October um, gave it a more definitive tone uh, in terms of. U.S strategic trajectory and this is definitely pointing towards a uh, direction of containing China maybe in more practical sense, um, slowing them down, uh, blocking some access. I think that's kind of the realistic aspect of it.
0: To, to tell us about some of the um, ways in which the Biden administration became more trumpian than Trump. Um, that's the wrong way to put it because obviously it's not the same style, like you said. But you know, yeah. how did they double down on the policies?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um I think the the even before before Biden administration um decided on this this trajectory, I think the, the US-China bilateral relationship has been deteriorating for a while. There wasn't really bilateral exchange. Um and, and even, and on the military side, I think even today, you could argue the, the communication has not been fully restored. Um, but really, I think the, the, during the, the COVID years, um, the, the two sides, uh, become more confrontational than before. And around Taiwan issues, um, you see similar type of dynamic. Um, I think that's, kind of multiple factors have been the driving forces um, of the worsening bilateral relationship. Um, And then you could argue the technology um, aspect of it also uh, plays a role. You look at how Huawei reacted uh, to U.S. sanctions over the years. And uh, even more recently, they launched a new phone and uh, the state media uh, portrayed that as a, a defeat of U.S. sanction measures. um, And do you think it was? I don't see, like, I will quote uh, Commerce Secretary (laughs) Raimondo from from her Capitol Hill hearing, uh, I think on the House side a few weeks ago. So far, U.S. government have not identified evidence that Huawei can produce the new 5G capable phone in scale. I think that's the status quo. I think the jury is still out. In terms of whether that new phone represents a, a major breakthrough that, um, that, that signals the defeat of US sanction measures, the defeat of the, the Jake Sullivan doctrine from last October. I think they what they did at the technical level is that they introduced some of the, the outdated tools, likely the DUV type of machine that's not the high-end stuff, that's not the ones that design to produce a 7-nanometer, 5-nanometer, 3-nanometer chips, they tweak that, they push that to the limit and produce a small number of high-end chips beyond the 40-nanometer threshold that US expert control um, drew a line on. And I think that's why they so far they have sold about a million of those high-end phones that has 5-nanometer uh, chips in it. But whether they can produce in in scale, that's a real question. Like Apple typically sells 3 million phones in China every month. If you only produce 1 million, let's say, every 3 months, every 6 months, can you really erode your competitor's market share? And then in right. the meantime, I Apple's new iPhone 15 already went to 3 nanometer this year. And then next year, they're talking about 2 nanometer. Mm-hmm. And you just you just um touch the edge of that nanometer. Um, so in, in terms of phone performance, um, you are still very much lagging behind, like Jake Sullivan said, multiple generations behind. And um, but for average consumer, um, it may, if you are not a professional gamer, uh, if you don't use your phone to do like artistic uh piece of work, then maybe it's not a huge difference if you're only using your phone to do emails and do WeChat and call your friends, that type of thing. I think that's why the, the Huawei phone, uh, the Mate Pro 60 is sold out overnight. I think there's definitely a patriotic drive behind the consumer enthusiasm um, for the new phone. but um, But in terms of pure technical performance, um, they they are there it's it's not a a meaningful breakthrough from geopolitical perspective maybe a little bit technical progress um in terms of they they now have some five nanometer chips I think that's um I think that that's um recognizable but in terms of geopolitical implication I'm not sure this means the failure of U.S policy
0: so I mean this also, it's kind of an IP issue too, right? If so many so many chips um, and the very top end chips are made in China, um, how have um, those companies been able to keep that technology away from the Chinese firms that are certainly trying to replicate it?
1: Oh, you mean um, high end manufacturers like Apple? Um, yeah, yeah, who, exactly. Who use those like high end components? I think because the the, the design and manufacture process of those chips are highly, highly sophisticated. Like only if you open the old iPhones, you look at the motherboard, you take every part out. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you can replicate each part of the process. You know, like I think the one of the bigger hurdle is a lithography machine. Those those are bus loads in size, and each piece of those machine is is hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, you use like big containers to ship them and then you need to assemble pieces in your factory once they they are delivered it's a very very expensive high capital uh, investment um, piece of equipment only only one company really conquered that territory you know like with that choke point technology, it's very hard to get around um, the high-end manufacturing process. And I have seen a lot of analysts saying that if China wants to um, create something similar indigenously, it may take them 10 years um, hmm. wow. in a more optimistic scenario, and they may never be able to do it completely um, domestically by themselves.
0: Is it also because of the uh, how quickly um, the technology develops. So I mean, you're talking about you know three nanometers to to two and and um, and it's just impossible to reverse engineer because by the time you've done it, the technology has moved on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Even at the at the leading edge of the technology, I think it's highly, highly competitive. You could argue TSMC is the only one who made it so far. You know, mm-hmm. Samsung, SK, Hynix, Intel, in some shape and form, they're a little bit behind. And um, all these companies have brilliant engineers and put in billions and billions. Each factory is like 15, 20 billion dollars. You know, it's it's not that they're not putting in um, enough efforts for R&D. They're always in this very brutal competition to see who can make it first. And somehow TSMC is the one that that cracked the code. Everyone... Mm -hmm behind them, to a certain extent, will collaborate with TFMC um, to produce the leading-edge chips. I think if, are t- if you're talking about the high-end, high-end stuff, but if you're talking about mature nodes, a lot of companies can do it. And I think that's another argument that you keep the Chinese um, two, three generations behind in the most up, advanced equipment market segment. The vast majority of the, the military equipment don't use the cutting edge. They use like a, a like hundred nanometer, sixty nanometer, wow. and most. And fighter jets and, um, and smart missiles, they, they are, they typically are not powered by the most advanced chips. That's why, um, like, For example, Russia and Iran, they still have some equipment, they still have some weapons in their hands because they could get some of the stuff off the market in the commodity market or in green market. They are not that well thought after. Um, So to a certain extent, the strategic aspect of this perceived competition, I think, um, it's, it's a little bit questionable.
0: So that's really interesting. I mean, so we could be multiple generations ahead at the top end and have no strategic benefit from it. I think that's what you're saying because most things involving national security are many generations behind. Um, And does that mean that our policy focus on things like the CHIPS Act, which we should get to in a minute, um, are kind of not focused in the right area if if, if national security is the concern?
1: Yeah, it's never. I think this is never a publicly disclosed information that what type of chips that the highest high-end U.S. weapon system use, right? You 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 won't find that information in the public domain. But right. at the same time, this is a very big part of their argument. I think one of the impetus for both Chips Act and the 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 tightening restriction is that what if something happened in the in the in across the street around Taiwan and and US get into a war with mainland China. And then in that scenario, are US chips um, being used to power Chinese missiles and Chinese weaponry system? And that's one of the, the, the big argument. And also if the, the supply chain got cut off across the Taiwan street, does US weapon system still have enough supply to keep going? I think that's one of the argument for CHIPS Act. At one point, I think they, they estimate they need to uh, reshore twenty five percent of the overall production uh, of higher end chips right now. Like over ninety percent of that is concentrated um, in TSMC in Taiwan.
0: So that's one of the justifications of the Chips Act. Um, what do you think about the Chips Act? Um, is it, it is it actually the right mechanism to reach those particular goals? And and what is it really set up to do, as opposed to what it's supposed to do?
1: <laughs> yeah. The not that that's a leading
0: question
1: or anything no the the strategic argument has been behind the chips act for a long time you know and then i think around the time the congress was going to pass chips act there's also the side argument coming through i think at the time we all observed the global shortage of Mm -hmm. chips because during COVID, like a lot of the Semiconductor factory um, paused their production or slowed down because they didn't expect a lot of demands coming up. And then I think the, at the end of COVID, the, the market dynamic reversed. There are a lot of demands uh, for chips, and particularly in the lower ends. So there's a shortage. Like it's cars, even secondhand cars right. on the market are very, very expensive. And then at that point, I think part of the, the, the proponents Community use that as the argument to push the the, the passage of chips. After saying we have the sort shortage right now, we should increase our capacity in order to meet that market demand. But it's very <laughs> it's very optimistic uh, optimistic um, argument at the point because you see the the market cycle goes up and down and. The past year or so, we see the reverse. The, the market dynamic reverse again. There's too much supply, not enough demand. A lot of the the chip production lines have been idle for a while. And I know what when does chips act capacity kick in? Probably next year or the year after next year. <laughs> you never know <laughs> at what point the the. Uh, the real um, capacity will get back online, and, and does that really match um, the market dynamic to deal with the shortage or oversupply situation in the market? I think those those are kind of two arguments um, being used back way back when to pass the chips act, and uh, yeah, the, the, I think I I I can't say I am fully on board with either of those, um, but there's this this sentiment. That we need to. There's strategic importance associated with this, this sector, and the market dynamic uh, alone is not going to be uh, address those strategic concerns. So the government need to intervene. At the same time, you look at what the Chinese semiconductor industrial policy has been doing. Like since 2014, they uh pledged about 50 billion dollars into semiconductor industry. And then the next wave, I think between Bloomberg and Reuters, their estimate is around 40 billion dollars. And there's a sense that we are competing with them. We should just do the same. <laughs> I think that's another factor that gives people pressure um and and say maybe well doing nothing is it's not the the right way going forward and, and we to, we need to do something. What is the something and Chips Act is the, the best option on the table at the moment. Let's let's just go with that.
0: Um but there's a lot of protectionism in that too. I think you, you might have I think I think it was you that said that instead of this being a no chips from China Act, it's a no chips from anywhere except the United States Act. <laughs> um and uh that's not entirely consistent with the rationale for passing it, right? I,
1: yeah, I think that's that's kind of an interesting argument to the point that if you look at the whole industry of semiconductor, it's very, very globalized. ASML produced this very sophisticated tool that ASML is, the Netherlands, is a Dutch company. And then some of the, the chemicals, the very um, specialized chemicals are produced by the Japanese. And then some of the, and then the leading manufacturer is TSMC in Taiwan. And you look at the the lower end of the industry, whether it's packaging, assembly, testing, a lot of that is in China, in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Thailand, all that. That's the natural economic um way of distributing the resources across the supply chain. And mm-hmm. then I think the, the government intervention to a certain extent, um, distorted this natural flow of technologies and exports and resources. Potentially there's a strategic justification to it, but uh, what's the, what's the probability of Taiwan street crisis that, um, will, will disrupt the supply chain and it will, have an impact on U.S. military supplies. I think that's the, the calculation we need to justify there.
0: What, what about, um, how is this affecting uh, U.S. chipmakers' investments in China?
1: Oh, they are stuck in between a rock and a hard place. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of these major companies have already invested in China in the past 20, 30 years. Once they put in a fab, A lot of them stay there for 20, 30 years. It's hard to pull them out overnight. But I think between CHIPS Act and uh, those export restrictions, they need to pull back or at least slowly wind down their operation over there over the next Coming decades or so. I think even the, the Korean company, Samsung SK Highness, recently got a little exemption from US government to mm-hmm. continue their operation in China. I think Samsung invested over 20 billion um, in China, in one city in China, in the in their industrial park in the suburb of Xi'an. And they they struggled um to comply with US rules. Um, but recently, I think in the past year or so, the U.S. government launched a series of effort um, to align with the Japanese, the Dutch, and the Koreans and get them on board. At the same time, they made some concession. They made some concession and saying, we understand you have business to do. We don't want to kill your factory overnight. Um, let's just wind them down and um to to moderate the, the negative economic impact on you guys um, in exchange for your getting on board. With our bigger strategy, I think the, the, the Netherlands official issued their export control rules. So they were they already stopped, uh, selling the high end methodology machine EUV to China. They never sold one. There, there was a transaction being initi, initiated, initiated, mm-hmm. then U.S. government official intervened. And then the in- transaction eventually just did not happen. And then the, now they're moving down a notch and saying, um, last October, the U.S. export control rule actually cut off um, ASML's supply uh, to China in terms of the higher-end DOV machines. So the, the mature tools, if it's a high-end, it's off-limit as well. They negotiate for a long time. And then I think the, the, the Dutch rule was released a few months ago. I think they will stop uh, shipping those the equipment to China starting January 1st next year. But I, I'm sure before January 1st, there are plenty of Chinese companies are buying as much as they can, you know. So let's hoard, let's hoard as many as, as we can um, before the, the restriction kicks in. I think all these companies are, are in a very difficult place um, between getting, if they get any chips at subsidy they cannot expand their operation in china beyond 28 nanometers for any significant transaction like there's a specific definition of what significant transaction is but basically upgrade or ma- maintenance of your existing pr- production line is okay but how, how do they
0: define um a subsidy how do, i mean you can allocate costs in so many different ways how do you know if a chip is made with a subsidy or not
1: yeah, they have they have some strings attached. For example, government is not supposed to use the use the subsidy to boost their like stock price directly. Like and then mm-hmm. you, you cannot just take the, the, the money and say this is my next quarter profit. <laughs> and, uh, and, <laughs> and then there's a the revenue sharing mechanism as well. Hmm. I I didn't get into the the fine print of that, but the but basically the government will evaluate your performance. If you are performing performing way above the government expectation, you need to give some money back to the government. <laughs> and, and then there's environmental uh, standards, there's labor standards. I think there's one there's one provision I like most. I think for for some of the fab, if you get subsidy, you need to build a daycare right next to your factory or fully reimburse the daycare costs
0: sorry i shouldn't laugh uh daycares are, are actually important for people to work
1: you know uh, but... i know i was like that's my dream job
0: yeah right, <laughs> exactly I
1: fully in Im- burst my daycare oh my god i would yeah. i would I I to move to arizona for that you know <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but wow. I, I read through the, the implementation rules of of the of CHIPS Act. I was like, wow, this this raised like a European regulation, you know, so many strings attached. And then like all, outside of all these these conditions, you have to when you apply for the these fundings, you have to um prove to government it, it it will raise your chance of uh success if you can prove that you have a local network of suppliers. You already have a support network and you have an educational institution work with you to Foster the talents that the factory um, needs in the future. So there's multiple pieces of the puzzle you need to put together in order to up your chance of getting those subsidies. I, I don't know how small million-sized companies do that.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, so I understand the revenue sharing, the 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 reason to want to do it, and the reason to want to get some money back if they're extra profitable. But um, I mean, I understand the why people would want that. But is it such that it will actually create a disincentive to, um, to, to to produce above some level, or else uh, what reasons to spend money in ways that it, you know appear to be costs? Uh, buy yourself a private jet, um, or <laughs> or are we are, are these numbers you know small enough that they're not going to have those distortionary effects?
1: I I I read the the the, the document. I just thought there's so many details. I. If, if I were an applicant, um, I, I need a team to track all these details yeah. and look at that and versus my, my books and see if, if it makes sense to apply to the funding, you know, but for, I think the very big companies, um, they already have an army of lawyer in their legal department and they, they have the internal capacity to outline all these, um, conditions and, and decide whether this is a good deal or not. Um, I think they are just better positioned to take on a challenge like that. I think TSMC already said they are pursuing somewhere around like $15 billion of the, the 53 or $62 billion uh, Chips Act funding. them. So are, TSMC, are any of
0: these other conditions actually related to the goal of having chip manufacturing be here? Or are they just so- social goals that the administration likes?
1: They, they definitely have um guardrail language saying mm-hmm. that if you 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 take on the subsidy you can't produce in china that that's right
0: first. okay
1: uh-huh. <laughs> you expect that i guess yeah 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 mm-hmm. um and i would assume this is this is like producing in the us is one of the the key baseline in your application because i think i heard um over the past few months or so there's still clusters immersion in the U.S. where the conditions is relatively competitive and if not ideal to meet these government um, requirements. I think Arizona is one of them. Some people say Ohio is another cluster. Maybe New York is another one. They already already have some sort of industrial base, already have some elements of semiconductor uh, industry. So it's not um so so the applicants are not working from a blank slate have to build everything from ground up um just looking at the the potential competitors in the game i think that those are those are the, the popular areas that may have better chance of getting government support
2: for adding conditions on i mean do you know about the chinese environment i was just in china hong kong and their infrastructure, they build a lot really fast. I presume that they don't have all these conditions or daycares, you know, next to their. <laughs> yeah. But not to say that you know we want to be like that as you know as a country. But if construction and building is the goal and the money is spent well, you know, a lot of advancement can be made. But a lot of these conditions, I mean, you need lawyers. It slows things down. Um, is there any, I don't know, any kind of comparison there between the Chinese approach and, I mean, yeah. they're doing industrial policy, so, uh, but you don't have these social goals attached.
1: Yeah, yeah, there are definitely less of those softer requirements compared to CHIPS Act. They're their way of distributing fund is also questionable. <laughs> they they have a national integrated circus fund, and the former minister minister of industry and IT played a big role in uh, allocation of those funding to semiconductor research project. And that guy is being arrested for a corruption investigation. <laughs> it has been wow. yeah, for I think it happened last year or so. He's still like being investigated. I, I, and at the I think one of the the chief manager of that fund, um, also under uh corruption charges as well. I think for for those, for them, they're also just making those dec- decisions based on like the 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 industry they're familiar with, the company they're familiar with, the people they trust. And that sounds like a very subjective criteria as well. Sometimes they work with these entrepreneurs before and or they they look at someone's resume, have a few conversations and, and think, oh, I, I think this this engineer has potential and I'm going to give him a chance. And sometimes that involves under-the-table dealing too. Um, that's, that's the source of this corruption as well. There may be some kickback in those decisions. Um, and I think that's that's another drawback of this type of big fund initiative.
0: So um,
2: debt, their fiscal situation is not very good. Like the public debt is almost a hundred percent of their GDP, I believe. I've yeah. So yeah. They're spending a lot of money. I mean, when I was there, there, there are cranes everywhere. There's built, you know, it it's being built up, but um, it's all debt funded.
1: Yeah, yeah. Our um, our uh, China economist um. Our one of our my coworker uh spent her whole time looking at China's economy. She took a trip to China last month and um had a conversation with some of the key financial maker, economic maker in China. Like because her estimate, like we your issue group's estimate is China's GDP growth is going to be between three and three point five this year. Even at the beginning, they said five, five percent. And our our estimate keeps dropping. I like think it mm-hmm. was, it was four around 4% over the summer. And then in the past two months or so, we brought it down even further. And we think that's an unthinkable situation. There must be a lot of pressure uh, among their decision makers, but the, but the trip revealed otherwise, like they seem to be thinking things are in under control. They don't want to push out the most drastic financial or physical policy measures they don't want a big stimulus package they don't think the problem we see today is structural they think they will weather the storm and at the same time they don't seem to be slowing down in terms of injecting more money into the critical sectors like semiconductor that's that's the that's our takeaway from recent trips
2: really?
1: some of their their argument has been um there's like a lot lot of local government that's in China but people's saving are are at a much higher level than for example in the US um they their consumers i think right now the government struggle a little bit in terms of steepening late uh consumer spending because but because uh, people have more saving in their their family's bank account um so they think that's a bigger cushion that's a structural difference than um say how US economy
0: operates I'm coming back to, to semiconductors, um, though. Uh, I mean, you you said before that um, there was just sort of some inherent problems with these big um, subsidy programs, and I, you know, I guess regardless of whether they're Chinese or American, I mean, the U.S. has lots of um, both failed and um, successful programs in its in its past. Uh, do you, does does the Chips Act is it set up in a way that plays to U.S. strengths?
1: I'm not sure it's this is the U.S. strength. I, U.S. Mm-hmm. hasn't done this for for many many years, and it, there's so many details like the all sorts of labor issues and um, environmental issues and how to distribute the funds. I don't think we are that experienced in dealing with industrial policy. Versus, if you look at the more top-down authorities in Asia, whether Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, China, they have done this and learned their lesson over the, the past few decades. They're more experienced with this and their, their system is more built in a way that's um that that's potentially facilitate top-down decisions like this. But our, I think our system wasn't wasn't structured, wasn't designed. Uh, uh, in a way that's um that's really easy it's to um design and implement industrial policy in a sufficient way so I think we'll probably learn some lesson from this round and see maybe <laughs> improve in, in, I'm not so'm not sure cycle. we're so good
0: at learning lessons um but <laughs> um if 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 there were no political considerations and course there were and maybe chips is the best thing we could have gotten but what what would your what would you have um done what what would what, what would a, a better policy have looked like fully recognizing that it may not have ever been possible to do anything like that yeah yeah
1: yeah 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 mm-hmm. exactly I I had argument with my husband about this the other day. <laughs> And he uh-huh. said, All of your suggestions is not feasible. None of this going to happen. <laughs> I, I, I was telling him, like, why why US is trying to do something that it has no experience with and it doesn't know how to, how to manipulate different parts of the system to get to where it wants to. Versus, like, I think in the past, look at how you have succeeded in these industries, like Silicon Valley, that's a name, come from the US, right? And, right. and I, I would argue that the free flow of capital of human talent and information and data is, is the most attractive feature of this system. You know, all the, the engineers growing up in different parts of the world, they want to come over to, to this part of the world and get educated here and plug into the network and understand how Silicon Valley works and get work experience and um, get into the innovation ecosystem in, in Silicon Valley. I think we should maintain that that moral high ground, you know, mm-hmm. and and or, or like this is this is how things have been done for for ages, and we we have done it really really well. Not because we are good 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 at industrial policy or um, letting bureaucrats pick what uh, semiconductor project to invest in, because we we keep bureaucrats out of the system <laughs> and, uh, and we we keep the the, the most talented people coming into the country and they will naturally find their places and and be very very innovative and and motivated to to contribute um to to the to the growth of this country
0: are we i mean are are programs like chips and um, making it harder for students to come in uh are are the do those risk uh you know killing the golden goose
1: um i think to maybe not the chips act itself mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely, um, I think the, the tension, the U.S. China tension definitely cast a cloud. Um, to, to immigrants, like before we started recording, I was telling you my own experience, like getting into the, the legal immigration system here took me Mm -hmm. 10 years, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I think for a while, the tech industry has been saying that we should reform our immigration system. Mm -hmm. If you have a PhD in STEM, you should staple the green card with the PhD diploma. You know, that should be a fast track process. That was. That was that was when I worked on those policy that's like like 10 years ago. And obviously we moved nowhere since then.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's our immigration policy is very unfortunate. Um we're we're coming close to the end of the time, but we we one thing we sort of skipped over were um export controls, which are not part of chips but happened about the same time, right? Um what how how do those um interact with everything we've been talking about? How do they make things more difficult for Firms, um, what are the potential benefits from it? Uh, what do you what What do you think about them?
1: I think that's that's one of the biggest flashpoint of U.S. China relationship. You know, like we were, um, I was talking to the, the the DCM of Chinese Embassy last week, and he was saying that there's so many export control measures. You look at how many Chinese companies get onto entity list in the past two years or so. It's like one company per day. Hmm. That's how many <laughs> how many companies has been sanctioned wow. and then there's there's no no way out of that there's no offering for this, you know like he he argued that theoretically um, Commerce department um, should offer a list of criteria. Some of them may be mission impossible for these companies to meet, you know, but mm-hmm. they should offer a list of criteria for these companies to present a case to take them. Self off entity list. There's no 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 venue for them to do that. Oh, so
0: once they're on the list, they have no way to get off it.
1: No, no, there's no <laughs> due process at all. And uh they they so the so so a lot of the so even so even the the for US tech companies, they have been watching the upcoming final rule of last October's restriction. Last October's re- restriction is the interim rule. And then uh, uh, about uh, I think October seventh, the the past Saturday is a one year anniversary, and we we heard rumors that Commerce Department is going to do the final rule, the update version, like this week. We haven't seen it come out, but I think that it has been um, very stressful process for a lot of even American companies uh, as well, because they are they are very concerned about their Chinese partners hmm. will get on the entity list. Some of them still have joint venture partnership with Chinese firms. And some of them have been uh, in in the center of the debate in terms of whether they should be the next entity list designation. And I think this week we'll see more. It's just this one-way street, you know, to keep expanding, expanding this list. Right. And, and uh, I think at one point, uh, Intel's CEO went to White House and I think at the the Austin meeting like two weeks before our version he said what he said to Jake Sullivan in the White House two weeks before which is like the more restrictions export controls you put on my products the more pressure you you put on the company and also the CHIPS Act because the CHIPS Act is there to give the top manufacturers a boost to their production but once you do that where do I find my clients? All of my Chinese clients are, are sanctioned. I can't sell to any of them. What's the way out for me? I think he was very frustrated with the situation as well.
0: Is there any evidence, I mean, that th- th- was very recent, but any evidence that they heard the complaints and are willing to do anything about it?
1: You mean you mean the decision maker for... He, he, yeah, Department? right. He,
0: he went to the White House and talked um, to Jake Sullivan. Uh, it, it, do you think the the administration is at all sympathetic to his um, concerns?
1: Um, I think they slow down the pace. Of mm-hmm. rolling out those new measures. That's mm. what that that's what I have seen in the past two three months or so. They plan to expand export control to cloud service provider wow. as well. There was a lot of chatter about that over the summer. Mm. Now the the rumor has died down a little bit, but it, you can never rule out that they just postpone it until the Xi Biden meeting, which is everyone anticipating to happen on the side of. Um, APEC summit in San Francisco in November. So they could just holding off right now to make sure they don't jeopardize the presidential meet, which is something Biden has been wanting for a whole year. They can roll out roll out something more drastic next year, Uh, Hmm. potentially in the political season. There's more fireworks with China. Then it's a it's an environment more conducive to drastic export control announcements.
0: Um, so we really need to, need to wrap up, but just as a final question, um, kind of an unfair question. Um, but at the beginning, you 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 said something about uh, how relations um, still haven't recovered uh, from their lows in uh, COVID during COVID. But something about the way you said it to me sounded like you were optimistic that they w- would get better. Um, now I know you know as as Yogi Berra said, you know, predictions are hard, especially about the future. Um, but what's you know what's what's your sense are we at a low point that from which we will recover or do we have further to go down
1: um i think my my long term hopefully more positive answer <laughs> is mm-hmm. that i hope the the us cycle um will pass through i think during trump years we we saw some of the some more um the, the darker ages for US-China relations. And I think like during Biden years, we stabilized the relationship a little bit. And um, I was talking to a friend the other day and and asking, do you compare the Trump years um, to let's say 1970, the Vietnam War days of hmm. US where when, when the, the society is very chaotic and people feel like, they are losing hope of the system. Did we already pass that that bottom of historical cycle? You know, I'm somewhat promising that like we are on, on this recovering trajectory and things will further stabilize beyond 2024. Because if Trump comes back, I I, <laughs> I I don't know I have much positive thing to say anymore, but uh but I'll I just say like I'll, if if I want to leave a little bit hope on the horizon, the silver lining is that if the if the U.S. political system can come out of this tunnel, I think we will see um, the, the 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 more stabilizing force driving the the bilateral relationship. Hopefully, in the in the near future.
0: Okay, well, that's a pretty positive note to leave it on. Um, so, Jemine, thank you so much for talking with us. It's always really fun talking to you. I always learn a lot.
1: Oh, I learned a lot from your questions. This is fascinating. We (laughs) should keep doing this.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: Of course.